Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock or industry. And today we have on the show, Brad Freeman. He used to be a recurring guest here on Chit Chat Money, so our longtime listeners might be familiar with him. But today we're talking about SoFi, short for social finance. He's been a shareholder here for a while, and he goes through all the elements of the business. They're kind of, I guess you could regard them as the fintech, a fintech disruptor, growing their deposit base really quickly. Uh, and, and we'll get into all that during the interview. If you like what Brad has to say, feel free to check out his substack, stockmarketnerd.com. There's a lot of good stuff in there. He's re- He works really hard getting a lot of content out, and he has a nice little weekly review come out every Saturday. So recommend giving that a quick look. Yeah, I think it's well worth uh, checking it out. It's free too. So no, no cost. But uh, without further ado, here's our interview with Brad Freeman. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome to Chit Chat Money. We are joined today by familiar face, familiar voice. Longtime listeners may remember Brad Freeman. We've got him back on the show to talk about a company that Brett and I discussed on a not so deep dive, I want to say a couple months ago. And we we went through the basics, but Brad has been a shareholder for a while and we kind of wanted to get his thoughts on some of the stuff we discussed. So we're going to go through a full deep dive on SoFi. Hopefully he can answer some of our questions, but I guess to start things off, I always find it kind of interesting to discuss the Genesis story, I guess, of how people come up with ideas. So how did you first find SoFi's as a, as a potential investment? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is using Twitter as inspiration and and treating 99 out of a hundred of the the ideas that are sourced via inspiration as is maybe not the best, but, but treating, but treating all, respecting all of them and, and exploring all of them. And, um, I, I'm, and Hamath was just such a big vocal pundit on, on, on FinTwit. I'll, I'll leave it at that uh, in 2020 and 2021. And just, I mean, I, I, I had deep respect for him. I, I, I still have respect for him. I'm, I'm, I don't know how polarizing of an opinion that is at, the, at this point, but, um, I was very interested in, in digging through all of his facts, the IPO A through Z or whatever it was. Um, and there was one that stood out and one that actually looked um, somewhat compelling, uh, not just from a, uh, what are my 2029 estimates and, and how pretty can I make that look on, on the SPAC presentation, but actually um, fostering the kind of success that, that could actually be rewarded by shareholders over the long term um, and doing so with a leader in Anthony Noto that, that I've respected for a really long time and, and not personally known, but just have, have followed his career through Goldman Sachs and the NFL and Twitter and just deep respect for him. Um, so that that really led me to digging in deeply. And clearly as a shareholder today, I, I liked what I saw and, and excited to get into all of that during this call. Yeah. And it is, it's, uh, I would say of the SPACs that uh, Social Capital ended up taking public, this one certainly seemed the most put together uh, as opposed to some of the others. But um, let's go through, I guess, 
let's walk through the business. Obviously, for anyone that knows SoFi, there's a lot of different elements here. And I'm, I bet this just causes chaos for a lot of the people that try to analyze this because there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. So what are the segments and kind of how do you think about the business? Yeah, I, I love chaos and I love confusion because it just it, it, it leads to people just saying, eh, I'll, I'll go somewhere else. And, and that that fosters the kind of inefficiency that I covet. So um, there are three main uh, product revenue buckets for the company. The the original product, which has since morphed into a, kind of a full suite, um, what was its student lending product, which um, I'm sure we'll get more into that um, as, as it's been a, a big headline for the last three years. But that kind of expanded into personal loans. Um, they bought a company called Wyndham Capital to vertically integrate their, their mortgage loan stack, which is now um, rolling out pretty nicely uh, with a few products that were announced in, in recent months. Um, and, and they do a lot of personal origination. They do, they do a lot of assuming credit risk. And then they have this product called Lantern um, that they use for uh, when this person doesn't qualify within our credit band or, or with, with the, the loan that they're seeking out, uh, we'll send you to a Bagaya or someone like that um, to take a referral fee and get paid. Um, the other two segments, um, so financial services, um, think about, so everyone posts about, uh, so if I just raised their APY and a savings count by 10 basis points, <laughs> so that that's the that really is the top of funnel uh, financial service product to get people in the door to cross sell. Um, uh, they, they have credit products, the, the high yield savings product and investing products. Uh, the investing product, um, I won't pick on too much because we're supposed to be uh, surface level for this question, but it does need work. Um, it has gotten a lot of work, but it needs a lot more love. Um, and then the third section, uh, which I think is the most interesting um, for SoFi, both in terms of potential differentiation and, and revenue diversification, is their tech segment. Um, so they bought a company called Galileo uh, a few years ago um, that really specialized in payment processing APIs. They then bought a company called Texas for multi-core banking, which has a whole other range of APIs to um, really uh, kind of shed the, these third-party costs um, that SoFi was paying in terms of licensing fees for private label technology. Um, and really leaning fully on Technosys um, and Galileo, not yet, but but um, they're they're integrating the tech stack pretty rapidly. It's going to take a little while longer, um, and 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 really um, also not not just shedding costs via third party licensing, but taking that technology um, and licensing it to the Robinhoods of the world um, who who need who need affordable APIs and 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 who can be considered um, competition in fintech, which, which really. Uh, makes SoFi, in, in my mind, not just a, a brand and not just a, a fintech player, but um, part of the plumbing of, of this industry where it can really take advantage of rapid sector growth, even if it brand, if, even if its brand doesn't thrive like, like I think it will and has so far. Okay. I guess one question or one way that we maybe characterized this was that we thought about it in basically three segments, personal finance, which is that, that core business you talked about, banking, which kind of is all encompassing, but they got that bank bank license, I think, in 2021. Um, and then enterprise tech, I can see the overlap between the banking and the personal finance and how those two kind of benefit each other. But on the enterprise tech, do you kind of think about that as its own independent operation or does that kind of tie in with any synergies to the rest of the business? Yeah, I think it's multi-pronged. So a big part of the tech segment is, is again, shedding those licensing fees for all these third parties they were paying um, for payment processing, for for user interface and interface and user experience, and and for the APIs that were enabling all these functions on the app to actually exist. Um, so the, it, it's sort of in a, it, it not sort of it does in a way make them a lower cost provider by being able to vertically integrate and bring in house this technology, so they're not actually paying. Yeah, go ahead, and, Ryan. And that was the Galileo business, right? 
Galileo got them sort of part of the way there in terms of they can do that with payment processing and, and some P2P products and things like that. But Technosys, which again, they're still working on integration it's, and it's going to be a multi-year process, really pushes them the rest of the way. Uh, but but the other thing that makes the Galileo and Technosys unique again, um, and, and sorry to sound a bit redundant, but it's an important point, um, is that again, banking and, and bank brands are somewhat commoditized. Financial services are somewhat commoditized. You can stand out with making your APY a little bit um, higher, you can stand out with offering a cart or an Instacart or a, an ARM IPO when, when some others can't. Um, you, you could talk about the, the actual value of, of doing that for the retail community, but I guess that's a discussion for another day. Uh, but really what this does is, is it allows SoFi not to just be participating in this brand-based commoditization, financial service, digitization, sorry, that was a mouthful sector, but it allows them to call Chime and, and call um, H&R Block and call these other customers their clients so that they can actually they can package this tech and sell it to them so that they can extract more value from this fixed cost base and not just treat it as sidestepping costs but treat it as a revenue augmenter um, which 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 I I find quite compelling where I'm not solely reliant on okay how big of a household name brand is SoFi going to become over time because that really is uh, aside from just the fortress banks of J.P. Morgan and Bank of America where people just know their money is safe. And, and, and that that in, in itself is a bit of a differentiator. That really is the only massive way to stand out. It's brand notoriety. Um, you, you, can, you can separate yourself a little bit with user interface like Robinhood has been able to do, but really how permanent of an edge is that? And, and I, I don't see it as that permanent of an edge, but th- this, this kind of offers in a very cliche term, that margin of safety where they're going to participate in fintech proliferation, uh, regardless of how well the brand does. All right. Yeah. And I'm ready for uh, football season and seeing all of the SoFi commercials on my <laughs> TV screen. They are stuck in my head. So I think, hey, you know, I think the advertisements are working. But for the listeners, you know, there's a lot of different segments here. Basically, throughout this episode, we're just going to go through each segment and kind of see what Brad's opinion is on it and maybe have some follow ups. So the first one we want to hit, and this is maybe the most important from a margin of safety perspective and from a risk perspective, is the banking side. So where are they getting their deposits and what are the areas that they lend to? I know we can probably hit the personal loans here. We did get some follow-ups on Twitter um, about the growth of that segment. Yeah. So where are these deposits coming from and, and who are they lending to? So that, that that's one of my favorite things about SoFi because a lot of these fintechs, um, and I've unsuccessfully invested in some of them over time, really are trying to make the pursuit of subprime credit or subprime borrowers and less affluent cohorts, more, I guess, more feasible and more economically rational to pursue at scale. And SoFi is not playing in that game. It, it is directly competing with um, JP Morgan and Bank of America and, and those kind of customers in terms of, and those time, types of competitors in terms of taking um, deposits from them. Now they have over a trillion in deposits each, I believe. So they're, and Noto, and the CEO acknowledges on the call, like we're taking share from them. They have no idea we're taking share for them because we're at 12 billion in deposits and they're at a trillion, but that really is where it's coming from. So a very relatively affluent customer, which translates or, or meshes very well with who their lending customer is and why they've held up so well over the last 18 months when others haven't. Um, so I, I don't have the exact number off, off the top of my head, but for both student and personal and, and home is still a very small portion of, of their originations, but their FICO is well over 750. Their average borrower income is well over $160,000 a year. So they are really pursuing this affluent customer which is why when you look at net charge-offs and delinquencies, um, a- as we see all these charts about uh, about loss rates reapproaching and surpassing pre-pandemic levels, they're not noticing any of that. There, there has been no discernible impact 
on their charge off rates or loss rates, they're still well, well below pre-pandemic levels. And that's because not, not only have they foregone expanding their credit bands and, and, and trying to chase maybe more risky borrowers um, for, for the sake of growing market share, they've actually tightened them in, in recent quarters, which again is why I love that Lantern product so much, um, which, which is, okay, we're, we're turning down a lot of borrowers because we have a very strict credit underwriting standards, but we're still getting that referral fee from others who are willing to originate this. Um, so yeah. What what percentage of their um, their I guess total deposit or their total funds are from direct to consumer deposits? So like people just yeah. putting their money, storing their money with SoFi for that. You know, yeah. I, I think I think they offer one of the highest APYs. So I think it's probably four or five percent. Four and a half percent, I think they, and I'm sure they changed it right as I said that. So so <laughs> it'll be it'll be wrong. But direct deposit rate for them is well above is well above ninety percent, which is very important for them. Like, like the more, the more financial data and the more financial um, ownership they have over their customer's life, it, it's the same playbook for somebody like a PayPal. If, if I know you better, I can, I can underwrite you and approve you more frequently. I can probably offer you cheaper access to capital. I can bundle all these products together and offer you rewards and perks via, via incentive program. And that is really how they're going to motivate retention and, and, and minimize churn in this somewhat commoditized and hyper-competitive field. Today's episode is presented by the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service. The Science of Hitting was founded by Alex Morris, who spent a decade working as a buy-side equities analyst before launching his own service in early 2021. You've heard him here on the show a number of times, but Alex produces really, really high-quality equity research. And in addition, he provides 100% transparency into all his portfolio decision-making. We were early subscribers to the Science of Hitting Research Service, and we genuinely believe that Alex produces research that is on par with top Wall Street analysts at a fraction of the cost. I mean, the fact that you also get complete portfolio transparency and 100% accountability is just icing on the cake. Effectively, you're outsourcing a full-time equities analyst role for just $349 per year. Brett and I both pay for the service on our own, and we can tell you that it's honestly worth the money. Some of the companies that Alex covers includes Microsoft, Netflix, and Meta, Roku, Costco, Match Group, Berkshire, tons of others. So if you're interested, check out the TSOH Investment Research Service today at thescienceofhitting.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. And let's hit again, because I know this is a lot of the risks that people talk about is the lending side. So they're attracting all these customers. You know, one thing that pops up to me is the personal loans. Um, you did mention that they're making you know, solid progress there and they have been trying to be stringent. You mentioned that if someone doesn't pass their credit standards, they pass them on to someone that is willing to take that risk. But what do you think of the balance sheet or this would be the asset side of the balance sheet? You know, have they said any plans here? Are they trying to grow the mortgage side, the student loan side, or the personal loan side more? Like, what what is their kind of plan for the trajectory of the loans over the next few years? 
So part part of the part of the convenience and, and, and the timeliness of, of this rapid deposit growth that, that we've been talking about, and they're adding two billion uh, per quarter, um, is, is that they get they get to rely less heavily on more expensive warehouse facilities and, and less expensive warehouse credit that they've in recent years, think to 2018 before they had their charter, were 100 percent reliant on. So the signal to investors of how stressed out is our balance sheet is is how how much uh, or how much are we shrinking our reliance on warehouse facilities because we have access to cheaper equity capital and cheaper deposit capital, which even with the 4% APY, they're saving almost 200 basis points in terms of weighted average cost of capital um, when they're using deposits versus when they're using warehouse facilities. And over the last several quarters, their, their overall capacity or their flexibility with warehouses facilities has, has merely grown because they're leaning more and more on, on cash on the balance sheet. They're leaning more and more on deposits and they're leaning more and more on, on their finite equity capital and having to utilize um, these warehouse facilities less free, less frequently. So, um, a big part of that is that asset-backed securitization and warehouse and 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 whole loan and whole sorry wholesale loan markets have remained open to this company. And um, th- there was some drama a few quarters ago about how, about how they didn't access uh, those markets. And okay, so can they access those markets? But they kind of symbolically um, passed or passed through a deal at at, at really favorable spreads in the, in, the, in this most in this most recent quarter. Um, but that that really gives them the flexibility to okay if if we do need to start um, leaning on warehouse facilities um, maybe we can just sell some of these lower yielding student loans and, and replenish the cash in our balance sheet so it, it's a combination of the fact that they're not choosing to do that they're continuing to to grow the balance sheet and grow the loans on their balance sheet when this is available to them they're for they're foregoing that option because their net interest income and their net interest margin is so much better for them holding these loans to maturity or holding them for a longer period of time than selling them outright. And then the second part of that, again, is that they're leaning less and less heavily on more expensive capital because they have these fresh sources of cheaper capital um, that they have. Uh, if you listen to their CFO on every single call, I know bank balance sheets are, are a bit of an adventure, but um, if you listen to him, he says over and over again, yeah, access, access capital, we're going to keep originating loans. We have all the flexibility in the world. Um, but I, I know for software as a service investors, and, and I'm, I'm sure as heck one of them, um, when, when you see a bloated debt position and, and not that much cash. So when you see a large net debt position, it, it is a bit of a concern, but it's intentional for this model. And just one of the un- unique pieces of bank, bank models and the fact that they can connect these deposits to originations where it really makes no sense for them to be keeping cash in the balance sheet. And it makes more sense for them to just be using all of this excess cash and, and, and going to chase high quality um, credit products um, and, and to reinvest in growth. So uh, the balance sheet is, is immensely com- complex. Um, it, it's, it always takes me several hours, not several hours, but it takes me, it takes me a long time when, when earnings releases come to kind of get through it and, 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 and feel confident that I got through every single item that's important. Um, but, but their, their balance sheet's in good shape. Um, and, and, and what makes that even less of a concern is that, uh, their, 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 their credit is performing so well and, and their loss rates and, and the provisions are so modest and that they're unrealized losses. And, and I know that's a buzzword that everyone thinks of with, the. Uh, the regional banking crisis, their unrealized losses are so minuscule because their their overall position um, in, in terms of holding uh, f- holding federal bonds in their balance sheet is so tiny. Um, so so relatively good shape, but I mean it has to stay in, in pristine shape if if we'd like to keep enjoying this rapid origination growth that has really powered the company's success over the last several quarters, um, alongside a few other things. Yeah, so that kind of brings me to my next question, and I'll I'll. We have two questions here, but I'll, I'll just lump them into one. So, when we looked at this, we saw for SoFi that it has this really high APY, or or when you 
when the average person goes and they put money into a SoFi account, they can earn, I think maybe I should check it, but probably four and a half percent annually interest on their money. On one side, I think, wow, that's, you know, that's high, especially relative to the, you know, the typical brick and mortar banking. I think brick and mortar is the right term, but physical branch banking. But at the same time, I think it feels like a bit of a risk. So I guess from your perspective, do you think they're going to be able to maintain that high level of APY relative to their peers? And the other thing I'm going to, I wanted to ask is we own Ally Financial who does something similar or in just in terms of like the non-physical branch banking model. Do you, is there any risk that their deposit base is like rate chasers where if SoFi like maybe they're not as sticky as the chase deposits. So if SoFi brings down their yield that they're offering to customers, because maybe there's some pressure on the loan side of things, do you see those deposits fleeing? I, I know that's a ton of questions, but basically, do you think they're going to continue be able to keep growing their deposit base or is there any risk there? Sure. And if I miss any part of that, um, please let me know and, and I'm happy to answer it. But um, th- this really is where an ally enjoys part of the same benefit as well, but most I mean, the Robinhood to the world, they don't in, in terms of connecting this deposit product to the origination product. And I'm actually paraphrasing um, leadership on, on, a, on a recent investor call. Um, and and that, that is such an important idea, again, because they have this bank charter in hand, even though they're paying four and a half percent APY, they would be paying six or seven percent in terms of cost of capital by accessing these warehouse facilities. So as these deposits come at four and a half percent APY, they, they actually are expanding their net, net interest margin and becoming more efficient and more profitable. But it's it's very easy to to raise um, your APY when when the Fed funds rate is just soaring through the roof and, and when benchmark yields are kind of following suit. But it's a lot harder to maintain um, that that lofty APY as as rates start to fall and as those net interest margins nat- naturally start to shrink. And, and again, that that's why this banking charter is just so important because it's pocketing 200 basis points in in, in incremental spread. Um, versus other fintechs who don't have this charter in hand and who do need to lean solely on warehouse facilities. They have so much more flexibility and so much more leeway um, to, to maintain that rate and to maybe take, okay, now we'll we'll have a 150 basis point advantage instead of a 200 basis point advantage. Um, and, and that really is what we've been told to expect um, by, by leadership in terms of when the Fed funds rate falls, our, our APY will be maintained significantly more durably than any other fintech on the market because we can connect this deposit product to the origination product. Um, and there was there was one more piece of your question in there that I really wanted to answer. Um, but I'm I guess just why why are they growing it? Like why is it because they can offer this APO? Is it, is the stickiness and the attractiveness kind of come in the same way? Like, okay, right. Like okay, we can offer way. this, but we can actually do it profitably and they're gonna stick around because we can have that slightly higher, you know, obviously yeah. higher than the big banks, but higher than a lot of the fintechs out there too. Yeah. And I, Ryan, I think you're right. There are a lot of yield chasers on 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 SoFi's platform, but if they're going to want to chase yield in a year when the, when the Fed funds rate it gets cut, they're going to go. They're going to go to SoFi, and and I think that's actually going to be a net benefit to them. As and I don't want to keep picking on Robinhood because they, they have stock lending and they have all, but they don't have a mortgage product. They don't have a student lending product. They don't have a personal unsecured lending product. Um, they 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 cannot take these deposits and turn them into basically money printing credit credit products with, with extremely affluent borrowers. And SoFi can so. So there are definitely going to be yield chasers who are moving around and trying to find that best deal um, as, as as the rate environment's falling. And, and I think that's going to push people to SoFi more times than not, just because of the, the APY durability is just going to be so much more sustainable. 
All right, let's move to another topic, and that is student loans. So there's a lot of confusion out there, I think, for someone that doesn't study this business closely. There's always these headlines, all the delays on the resumption of payments in the United States. Just what are your thoughts on the resumption of student loan payments, and how can that impact SoFi financially? Sure. I think there's two parts to it, and I'm going to intentionally avoid taking political stances because I think that's just always a distraction for, for investors. Um, but in, in terms of student loan products and what does it mean? So um, one of the main, so heck, let me get into progress so far. So uh, the, the, the the moratorium is over. Now there's that 12 month payment on ramp that the Biden administration has rolled out. But the important thing to remember is that interest will be accruing as that, as that passes on. So people actually have a vested incentive to start repaying their loans now, which hasn't been the case um, for three years, which is why um, on, the, on the last call we, we heard or not on the last call because it was too early. It was it was last week actually um, at I think it was a Goldman Sachs conference or something where Noda was talking. It might have been Chris LePoint, um, but they both spoke very recently saying that the student loan volume ramp has been very much so as expected and in line. Um, and, and then the other part of that is okay, the, these these borrower or the, these student lending borrowers haven't been paying loans in three years. Now they're going to have another hefty expense. What is that going to do to loss rates? What is that going to do to their overall budget and their discretionary income? And that goes back to, to the important point of how relatively affluent um, and, and rich, uh, for for lack of a better term, SoFi's customer base is, which is another big reason why their credit book is held up so well. But they are going to deal um, with with with, with that um, increased cost and increased headwind, just like everybody else. Um, but again, because one hundred sixty thousand dollar average borrower income FICO score well over seven fifty, I think they're going to be relatively better off as that headwind kind of hits the economy. Yeah, I think there's. What's nice about student loans and you know it's been a tough market to be in over the last three years is they're much more reliable than say a, a personal loan or you know the loss rates are, are much much lower it's it's a very steady business um unless okay you have a follow-up there on no I, I was just it was actually an interruption so if you want to finish your point feel free no I was going to transition to management so if you have any anything else before we hit management go right sure ahead. and just kind of framing the opportunity for student loans and there's been a lot of skepticism surrounding sofis Kind of two billion, two hundred billion dollar um, volume origination estimate, which gives them a several year runway because they haven't originated more than twenty billion in a year ever. Um, but so, so there's a lot of that. That two hundred billion dollar estimate, um, we got more clarity in in recent weeks that that's actually loans at today's uh, at today's Fed funds rate that they can actually shrink the rate of, um, so they can actually refi at, at lower rates to cut your interest payment. But there's also another there, there's another tier of this demand that's going to kind of ramp up over the next several quarters of people wanting to lengthen their payment terms. So, so pay it out over double the period of time so that their principal payments get, get shrunk um, just so that they can manufacture or financially manufacture a little bit more flexibility in their, in their day-to-day lives. So those are going to be really two, the two levers to, to kind of focus on. And as, um, as, as the Fed funds rate drops, which is going to be a, a personal lending headwind, it's going to be a student lending headwind, it's going to be a home loan tailwind. Um, but for those, those two products, th- those two variable, variable refi products, that's going to be a very important growth lever to kind of keep the the, the student lending origination humming. Um, people looking inherently, they, they want to pay lower principals. So who can do that? And, and SoFi will be aggressively telling you as they always do across social media and across marketing and across um, this, this big SoFi stadium banner that they have. Um, they, they will be aggressively telling you that they're the person to do that for you or they're the company to do that for you. Yeah. What do you think of the uh, stadium deal? Yeah. Um, I so it's, it's actually funny because Noto talked about this two weeks ago as well. He was explicitly asked, like, 
why did you do this? I mean, you 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 came at, you came into the, the SoFi as as the CFO of of a few very highly renowned organizations, and this doesn't feel like a financially prudent thing to do. Um, but but he he gave some math. They were sponsoring, I think, the U.S. Open and the Olympics and X Games or something like that. Um, and they were paying th- that twenty million dollar fee that they're currently paying for about twenty million unique viewers. Um, and SoFi Stadium is actually four xing that, so they're paying twenty million for eighty million unique viewers, and they shed it that other 20 million to kind of forex their their reach. Um, but he he said, um, I don't really believe this, uh, but whatever, you, you could believe it if you want to, that they only paid for um, primetime football games and the Taylor Swift concert and the Olympic opening ceremony and the FIFA World Cup events were all icing on the cake. I, I would harshly criticize uh, the SoFi Stadium or the that stadium's um, financial decision makers or their management team if they weren't including that in the overall price tag. Um, but I, I guess if they weren't, then good for SoFi. But um, but the the important thing is that that twenty million dollar fee for eighty million viewers is is a, a large upgrade versus what they were spending before. It is, yeah. I think the deal kind of makes sense, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. Better than like the cable company in Seattle that sponsors the stadium. It, that one makes zero sense. But Ryan, the, do you have some? Yeah, and I don't know if this is actually how people think, but you know, if I were looking for a new bank or I were looking for something that gives me a potentially a higher yield, my first thought is like okay, is, you know, is this bank safe? And if you, <laughs> I don't know why this, this is probably not how things actually work out, but if you look at the SoFi Stadium, you see this massive structure. It's really kind of futuristic looking. You, you think, wow, they must have tons of money. They must be safe, even though it's probably, not, <laughs> like maybe it wasn't the financially prudent decision. It has the kind of the, I don't know, people probably think like, well, yeah, they're probably loaded. Um, yeah, the, the the FTX and the crypto.com does <laughs> yeah. make you scared. But yeah, I mean, if you look under the hood, this is a better, money. better run company. <laughs> I yeah. Hope. yeah I, the crypto.com I, I, arena might ruin that. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this one will go a little bit better. But you mentioned management. You mentioned you think highly of them. So what are your general thoughts on management as it'll follow up? What are your thoughts on Noto buying shares? I believe in the open market. Yeah, I'll never complain about that. So Anthony Noto, if, if you want to buy a lot more shares, that that, that would work for me. Um, and, and he spent a pretty decent chunk of his estimated net worth online on shares. So it's been somewhat meaningful in terms of his open market purchases. But I, I mean, SoFi, they, they needed a former army captain and, and, and someone with um, a very disciplinary and focused background and also former head of TMT at Goldman Sachs, CFO of the NFL and Twitter. They needed a dynamite resume because um, that the founding leadership team had, and, and I'm, I'm quoting articles that I've read in the past, had become kind of like a frat, a fraternity environment um, where sexual harassment was running rampant. And they were originating um, student or student loans at, 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 at rates and at offers that were never even going to have a remote chance of, of making any kind of um, positive net interest income. So they were burning through cash. Um, they, they weren't um, kind of chasing, or, or I'll, I'll start there. They were burning through cash. Um, there were several cultural issues, cultural issues that needed to be turned around to a point where they almost sold um, before Noto was brought in and, and kind of right of the ship. But part of what I've liked so much about Noto's tenure um, is that he's, he's transformed the company in a very short period of time. Um, and again, um, some products need a lot of work, but they've come a long way very quickly and, and they'll work on them and they'll get better. I'm thinking of the Invest product and I, I know fellow listeners are, are, are compl- complain about that frequently and they're right to do so. Um, but he really turned it in from a student lending shop to a cliche term one-stop shop. And and, and why that matters 
um, is, is first of all, they get this cross-selling and inherent LTV to CAC advantage o- over a lot of companies. Um, but not just that, but there are a lot of legacy banks who are just unwilling um, to offer lower return on equity investment products. They, they just, they forego them and they focus on higher return products. And, and that makes a lot of sense. But by SoFi being there for, for lower ROE products, um, which I mean, a lot of their financial services are, some of their lending products are, some of the credit um, origination bands that they originate in aren't super high ROE, but they're getting there. Um, but it, it allows them to kind of be be that omnipresent force for, for someone's day-to-day financial lives where, um, okay, yeah, I, I, I got this product from you, it went really well, so why would I go anywhere else? Um, and clearly, some obviously, some of them will go somewhere else. But more times than not, they're they're going to re- they're going to retain and, and and they're not going to churn, um, and and they're going to be cross sold um, with with virtually zero incremental added customer acquisition cost, um, which I use the acronym LTV to CAC. That's just lifetime value to customer acquisition cost. I know you two know. I know ninety nine percent of the, the listeners will know, but now everyone knows. Um, so they really they they really get this unit economics advantage over over pretty much everyone else. Now now there are there are other banks who are willing to step into lower ROE products. But they get this advantage of, of getting their foot in the door and then either getting their foot in the door with high ROE products initially, but getting it in the door and then, and then cross-selling over and over again to really enhance their unit economics to a point where if you're foregoing offering these lower ROE products, you, you can't match that. Um, and they offer some, uh, some math on their, on their SPAC presentation, but they've since reiterated it over and over and over again, which is the only reason I'm citing it, um, where just their LTV ast- astronomically rises by several factors without their CAC moving which makes these lower ROE products make a lot of sense, but you have to offer all of them to get to that point. And, and they've really been willing to offer all of them recently. Do you bank with SoFi? Uh, I do not bank with SoFi. I am I am a self-employed uh, writer who cannot access that, that juicy 4.5% APY. So I'm a sucker being paid one basis point by Bank of America. <laughs> that, that's what that- <laughs> Aren't we all? So am I. So, so yeah. am I. <laughs> I think, yeah, but- to be fair for the people, I guess, that throw all their money into their brokerage account, it's a little, you know, it's yeah. not the same. Yeah. It, that, my, yeah. My, my disposable income pretty much all. Yeah. But like you said. Yeah. The, yeah. The checking account, we, we like to, uh, I like to keep it lean. I think Brad and Ryan are probably the same. For sure. Yeah. Maybe all a right. little le- leaner than I like sometimes, but the, yeah. uh, it- <laughs> another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, I forgot to throw this question on the little question document that I sent you, but valuation, how do you value this thing? And it, this was kind of one thing that it was sort of a hiccup that Brett and I had when we looked at it was like, oh, okay. Like it feels like they have an advantage in attracting deposits. It seems like where they're putting that money makes sense and they're doing it at attractive yields, but I have no idea what they're going to earn. So it's hard to value them. So I guess, how, how do you look at it? And maybe this this throws into that this goes into that question we got on Twitter, which is, what do you think of their use of adjusted EBITDA? Yeah, um, banks shouldn't use adjusted EBITDA. Um, so it, it's it's being used by necessity because, well, they're, they're using contribution profit and, and they're using adjusted EBITDA. Those are the financial metrics that they're really pointing to. But but again, that, that's by necessity. And, and it's extremely hard to value SoFi right now 
but it's going to become a lot easier in about three months, six months um, when they turn gap net income profitable and when you can actually evaluate them um, so somewhat more similarly to a normal bank. Now it's going to be way more expensive than a normal bank because revenue is going to keep growing in the 30% range. So there's there's going to be bears forever until SoFi is a mature, hopefully a mature, very successful, very large company um, who are saying it's stupidly expensive, but um, really going to have to focus on peg ratios versus PE ratios um, and, and just account for that growth because it, it's going to be growing gangbusters, it, especially on the bottom line for at least the next three or four years, just because of all the the incremental operating leverage they have in the model. And you can really see that in, in incremental margins that they're putting out. So, so their goal is is to, and I'm going to use adjusted EBITDA, even though I, I said don't use it because that, that this is what, what they kind of, how they frame the conversation is we want a 30% EBITDA margin, um, which, so we're going to invest 70% of our potential profits back into the business. We're going to let 30% flow to the bottom line. And from that 30%, we're going to, we're going to convert about two thirds of that into gap net income. So they're, they're shooting for a 20% gap net income margin, which gets them to about 20 to 30% return on equity. Um, so the fact that their incremental margins in terms of EBITDA and, and, and gap net income have been, I think it was over 40% for, for both of them in, in the last quarter. So they, they're running well above those targets, um, which is why they've been delivering such rapid operating leverage. But that really is the most polarizing thing about SoFi is um, no other bank uses adjusted EBITDA. And there's a reason that no other bank uses adjusted EBITDA. It's a little, it's a little, a little bit more appropriate for them because they don't have um, all these branches around the United States. And, and so depreciation expense is a little less of a, of, a, of a concern that should be accounted for for them versus a Bank of America or somebody like that. Um, but it, that, that really is the most polarizing aspect of SoFi. And I'm very much so looking forward um, to the day where I can say it trades for X times earnings instead of X times adjusted EBITDA um, with X earnings growth rate, because they, they are I, I mean, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty large book of revenue. So when they inflect the positive gap net income, the, the ramp should be pretty brisk, especially with the incremental margins they're running at. Um, but but that, that, that is my least favorite part of the company that I have to say it trades for, for this, this, this EV to EBITDA multiple. And, and I, I, I gross myself out when, I, when I'm saying that because th- this business model should not be valued based on that. And, and fortunately, it's not going to be very soon. All right. Yeah, that's a great summary. Now, when I hit the tech platforms again, uh, if you look at their charts in recent quarters, you'd kind of look at it first and say, hey, like they're not growing the technology partners anymore. The accounts have stagnated, but they did have some good, and I'll let you explain it, some good explanation there. So why is that? And what value do you think? Well, I guess you already talked about the value, but wh- wh- why is that? And it, it, why is it not a concern for you? Yeah, I think, um, so there's been a large philosophical or strategic shift. I think that really... Um, stems from the fact that uh, th- this platform and this product, th- its first initial growth phase, phase under SoFi was born during a time when growth at all costs was what everyone cared about. And how many customers did you add this quarter and and how fast did revenue grow for the segment? And um, especially on the customer point, uh, that really, and, and PayPal is another example of this. Several companies in my portfolio were, were examples of this, just going after these very low value, not even having any established member base clients, because we want to say our client base went from 20 to 30 quarter over quarter. And that means we're doing well, clearly, um, as I say sarcastically. So um, they, they really shifted from um, from pursuing these, these large, large clients with very short sales cycles to going after bellwether top 10, top 50 financial institutions, both financial service companies and non-financial service companies they're going after now. Um, for these integrated banking services that they can offer on a B2B basis so that these, these companies, the H&R blocks of the world can offer products to their customers, to their employees, to their members, 
um, whoever their stakeholders are. Um, so that that shift has really led to slowing revenue growth um, for, for most of 2023. We're, we're supposed to get uh, sharp acceleration starting in Q4 and, and continuing on thereafter because the sales cycles for, for onboarding these larger clients are a lot longer. And because it really had no larger clients in the pipeline that were wrapping up the onboarding cycle that were ready to start contributing revenue. So it's been a period of growing pains um, on, on the top line that is supposed to wrap up, supposed to Q3, um, that they've been pretty good at, at, at guiding to, to things like this. So I'm, I'm confident they're right. But I mean, when you're when you're saying things are slowing down, but they're going to speed up, there's always uncertainty associated with that. So um, something for for investors, for people contemplating this idea, for for skeptics, everyone to pay very close attention to um, when they when they report Q4 earnings um, early next year. Um, so that that's the top line. On the bottom line, we've seen contribution profit for this segment kind of go from roughly 30% to 20% in, in a very quick period of time. Um, that is all Technicist integration related. They, they've they've had to do a lot of work um, to combine tech stacks, uh, to unify um, functionality of APIs, um, to to get themselves ready to be able to package all of these products um, in, in, a, in, in an RFP um, to actually kind of go chase these top 10 institutions. Um, so that, that work has been ongoing throughout 2023. Again, should wrap up early 2024, right when these clients should start translating into more revenue. Um, which is why they're telling us um, that it's going to the contribution margin is going to ramp back up to thirty percent over time, um, but that that has been um, the sore spot of, of the company's last several last several reports. We've seen um, member base decline uh, because they, I think um, because they lost Chime um, as as a as a customer they, they had a large customer churn, um, but there, there are there are reasons to be optimistic. I'm, I'm kind of sick of them saying. Um, that the top 10 institutions are coming. They're, they're really close. They've been saying that for a few quarters. So just really ready for that to be announced and, and to start translating into financial success. Um, there's reason to believe that we'll start um, in Q4 and really ramp up materially in 2024. And it needs to, I think. Would you rather see SoFi with or without the enterprise tech segment? Like, would, would you prefer that they didn't have it at all? Um, no, I, I, I really like, I, I love the vertical integration, just because they're saving so much money um, and out-of-pocket costs on third-party vendors. And because, again, um, an investment case based solely on a consumer-facing brand, unless you're investing in like a Lululemon or, or, or an Apple or Nike or something like that, just, just massively popular and ubiquitous, it, it is somewhat risky and it is extremely abstract. Like how um, how how does added brand recognition and added um, unaided brand recognition translate into more members and more revenue. And there's not a formula um, for, for describing that. So because they are going to participate with the Robin Hoods of the world in, in, in fintech proliferation one way or another, I do think that provides a little bit of downside safety in, in, in the unexpected scenario where SoFi's brand just does not resonate. I, I mean, the terminal value would not be zero in that case, and it could very well be close to zero um, if, again, unexpectedly, SoFi just stops working for whatever reason on the consumer-facing front. All right. This has been a great update on SoFi. Uh, for anyone that wants even more updates, I'd recommend subscribing to Brad's free newsletter, The Stock Market Nerd. And we'll let you talk about that when we finish this last question. But to wrap things up, any longtime listeners know we ask the same question every time and it's the pre-mortem. So what could go wrong here? Why would an investor lose money in SoFi over the next three, five, seven year time frame? Yeah. And I, I do think um, again, downside risk is not zero because of, of this tech segment, but I, I do think it all comes down to the abstract um, idea of how well does this brand work? And, and you can see in their marketing payback periods that 
they're starting to shrink um, their time to value in terms of spending on external marketing, but um, they, they're going to have to keep spending on external marketing. I mean, SoFi is not going to be a household brand overnight. They're going to keep ha- having to deliver compelling LTV to CAC ratios. They're going to have to keep um, delivering very compelling incremental margins. Um, and I think kind of where, where excitement is in terms of the retail community and, and, and everyone that the bar is high for them to continue succeeding. I mean, I mean, again, it, it's, it's not like that the company's tripled from its, from its public debut. I think it's, yeah, it was a spec. So it was a $10 debut and it's at like nine something right now, but it's, it's held up far, far better than the clovers of the clover healths of the world. And I won't pick on any other names, but um, it, it is, it is quite, or it, it's not, it, it's not a concrete idea. Like, um, yeah, we, we have H100 chips that, that train generative AI models significantly more cheaply than everyone else. Like there's no, there's no concrete tech or statistical advantage that SoFi can point to besides we'll pay you a little more on the APY front or, um, or we'll offer you more products. So it really is, um, it's, it, it's, it's a somewhat abstract idea of, of how well is the brand going to resonate, um, with, with the world, with the United States first and, and, and hopefully the world after, uh, but that's, uh, the, the focus is on, you can or is, is on the United States right now and not globally, even though they've done a few things in a few countries, but that needs to keep working. Their unaided brand awareness needs to keep translating into 30% growth. It needs to keep translating into operating leverage. And there's never any guarantee that that's going to happen. I, I mean, it would be a pretty ab- abrupt shift if their marketing just stopped working and people said, F SoFi, I'm, I'm going somewhere else, but um, they could, or, or what if some other competitor um, comes by and, 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 and has maybe he's partnered with Amazon or partnered with Apple or, or something like that and can offer all these products that are rationally um, great deals and, and undercut you because we're not relying on this profit center or whatever for our own success. So there's just, there's, there, there's the fact that um, I don't, I, I don't want to say there's low barriers to entry because really no one has digitally emulated what SoFi has built um, in terms of their full suite. Um, but there's, there's always that, there's always that ability. And there's all these legacy banks that are trying very hard to emulate what SoFi is trying to build. Um, and, and they could, maybe they'll figure it out at some point. So there's a lot of competitive pressures um, that there's a lot of moving pieces in terms of the competitive environment. Um, and, and there's a very abstract concept in, in leaning on brand equity um, to kind of power the success of this company going forward alongside their product suite and alongside their leadership team. But brand is a big part of this. And in the world of banking, that's unique. That's a little weird and it's a little uncertain. So I think that's what keeps me up at night. Okay. Well, that is all the questions we have. Brad, where can people find you? Stockmarketnerd.com. All right. Perfect. Uh, before we sign off here, we should throw a disclosure on this. Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Brad, unless you got your uh, uh, credentials here lately, you're not a financial advisor either. So, Okay. He, he's, he's shaking In his head. my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is his personal opinion. It's not formal advice or recommendation. Brett and I are, however, general partners at Arch Capital's clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Brad, for coming on the show again. And uh, we'll see you all next time. 